Well, hello and welcome to episode 132 of The Professor and The Hack, dealing with the politics of the nation and the world. I'm The Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me, as always, is The Professor, Peter Van Ronsen. And G'day, Pete. G'day, Hugh. We're counting down to the budget. It's exciting for those of us who love policy, politics, and economics to have two budgets in one year. What, a, what an unusual situation. And... We get an early one next year. I know this probably isn't exciting sports fans out there, but for me, this is wonderful. Three budgets within the space of a 12-month period. Fantastic stuff. Three grand finals in the space of 12 months. <laughs> oh, the excitement. But will we see anything of note happen? That's going to be the fascinating thing, obviously, because you can have a budget, but having a budget of itself doesn't mean that there's anything interesting that comes out of it. It's funny, isn't it? Because when, during the election campaign, the Labour then opposition said, oh, look, you know, uh, we don't believe the figures coming out of the government. We've got things to do. So we're going to have a budget in October. It signaled a kind of a purposefulness, you know, that Labour, if it came into office, wasn't going to wait around. It was going to put things to right. Mm. And it was going to have serious things to say by October. And so now here we are. What can we expect? There is good news in the budget. The commodity prices have come through, but plainly a lot of reality as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the the thing that makes this budget matter is if they make it, some policy changes. Otherwise, it's no different to a slightly early end-of-year budget update, really, which we get around mid-December anyway. So what's supposed to make this, you know, sort of second budget for 2022 mean something is that they're going to make some policy adjustments. What do those look like? Well, a lot of speculation that they might adjust the Stage 3 tax cuts or at least say they're going to repeal that legislation, but that's clearly not happening. The Prime Minister knocked that on its head. I think it's still absolutely on the agenda for May next year, possibly even May the year after that, because they don't come into effect these stage three cuts until halfway through 2024. So I think it's on the agenda, but it's not on the agenda for next week. Jim Chalmers is the new treasurer. He's made it clear that there will be cuts. Uh, he's certainly talking about pork barrelling cuts. So I think a lot of these national party programs that have been targeted by the Auditor General, for example, I think we're going to see some trimming there, but that sort of stuff in the context of a, a $1.5 trillion budget really doesn't hit the sides. What's going to be interesting for me is going to be to see if they have anything substantial that we're not ready for or that we didn't expect. I mean, there's been the talk about the changes to paid parental leave to extending it to a full half year. We heard that from the Labor conference in New South Wales. But really, uh, it doesn't sound to me like there's going to be hugely meaningful change in the budget. That might come in May, but it'll give an opportunity, as you sort of alluded to, Hugh, it'll give an opportunity for Labor to recalibrate where it sees the priorities. So I think this is more about rhetoric and more about spin. And I don't say that in a pejoratively negative way, you know, sort of setting people up for what they do come May next year, because that will be 12 months into the government. They don't want it to come as a surprise. And then they'll use the intervening period between the end of this budget, end of October, right through to the May budget next year to sort of try to build a narrative around what hopefully is a little bit more substantial come May next year. What do you think? Well, I think one of the things that is interesting, of course, with all these documents is that you get an updated version of the uh, forecasts. So the growth forecast, the state of the economy, and these things always are subject to change. That's the nature of forecasts. They get mugged by reality. But you know, the IMF has been quite gloomy about the prospects, both for the global economy, the US, Europe, China, but also for Australia, it has it trimmed back the expectations for growth in Australia. And we're seeing a little bit of this come through in Jim Chalmers' tone, I suppose, in that he is uh, kind of signalling out there, look, things are tough. This is going to be a Labor budget. 
but a lot of things that Labor might want to do or that people might expect us to do, we may struggle to pay for. And a good example for that is the NDIS. This is plainly a Labor creation. And the idea was, as according to the Productivity Commission that helped birth the NDIS, it was going to be a policy system that was going to pay for itself through releasing people to get out into the workforce because the NDIS was going to you know, make all these things happen. And yet it is really blowing out seriously and unsustainably. And Bill Shorten, we now learn, is bringing forward a review of the NDIS, and there's going to be some bad news to come from that. But uh, the other thing that Jim Chalmers has signaled is that there will be a cost to the budget of the dreadful floods. The picture's heartbreaking, particularly coming out of Victoria. Mm. How much do you think that affects the budget? It is a tragedy, and that you know it's a tragedy for so many people, Peter, and Jim Chalmers has acknowledged that. But how much do you think it actually has as an impact on the economy? Yeah, look, I think it does have a significant impact. We've seen that with other floods and obviously with bushfires as well. It's a blip moment, and there can be a, there can be a reconstruction uptick that follows down the track, but it undoubtedly does have an impact. And depending on the level of damage in the fallout from the floods, that can then have an enduring impact as well. So that will feature, no doubt, in the budget. But it's interesting what you say, Hugh, because I think, I think you're right. This budget, what it, and this was what I was trying to probably somewhat ineloquently say myself, this budget is about Labor giving those updated figures, okay, giving them a little bit earlier than they would normally give them at the end of the year in mid-December and being able to do so in a higher profile context of a second yearly budget. And then, yes, they'll do some minor things around that. But by updating the figures in the context of where things are at with the global economy, inflation, interest rates, and so forth, it allows them to then turn around and say, this has the following effect on the forward estimates and on expected tax returns or expected outlays around things like you know, various social security spending and so on. And that gives them the capacity to build the narrative saying, we therefore can't spend as much as we might have liked, or we therefore need to potentially look at this reform or down the track, they can then say, this is why we're now reviewing the stage three tax cuts, for example. So I don't see a lot happening in this budget. There will be some things, but that framing and that update is so important to them reclaiming the economic narrative for the remainder of this term to justify their decision-making and in a sense to justify that circumstances perhaps have changed to justify them changing policy from what they took to the election perhaps as well. So a lot of the budget is going to be about that. But you mentioned the NDIS, Hugh, and I mean, I remember actually when it was first implemented, two things. I remember texting Bill Shorten at the time when he was the parliamentary secretary who essentially implemented it under the Rudd government, Rudd and Gillard governments, I suppose. And I remember saying, great idea, great initiative. I particularly liked it having been a carer for my mother, not that I think she would have qualified for it. I saw you know, the, the incredible need that people had for the scheme. But I also, in the first article I wrote about it, noted that we're going to have to think very seriously about the cost structure of this, because I think most people want it as a society the same way we want something like Medicare, for example, but we need to work out how to structure it so that it's sustainable. I think most people would like to have universal dental care too, but we don't have that because for some reason they haven't been able to find a way to structure it as a sustainable thing, but I think we should have it. 
the NDIS is is probably not only no different, but probably of greater need because we're talking about people who are on the margins even more uh, than utilise those other universal services. But it is a financial issue going forward. And this is the debate, Hugh, that I think Australia needs to have, you know, and we won't have it around this budget, but I think we need to have it at some point during this term of government. What do we want from government? What are must-haves from government? And once we establish that as a community, what is the cost of sustainably delivering those must-haves? And if the cost of sustainably delivering them is much higher than the current tax take, it is unsustainable until we find a way to recalibrate the tax system, because otherwise we're funding these must-haves with debt, which of course eventually becomes a problem and it arguably already is. That's the debate this country needs to have. You and I have talked about it on this podcast many times. The politicians are yet to have it. They need to get on with having it during this term of government at some point in time. Yes, indeed. Look, a couple of things, just going back to floods. You know, the government's keen to save some money by not doing, as you say, those uh, some of those infrastructure schemes that many of them Barnaby Joyce negotiated as the price for uh, signing on to net zero. But again, you look at the floods, there is an enormous amount, you know, thousands of kilometres of road in rural areas and regional areas of Australia that have been damaged by floods, bridges and so on. That has to be paid for. So just as you're saying, look, we're going to save some money on on some of these sort of boondoggles in the bush, there is a huge amount of work to be done post-floods. Floods do have that effect. Bushfires, to my mind, are more horrific, but floods cost an enormous amount of money. And they- yeah, longer recovery, I think, for floods. Uh, you know, not, not, not environmentally, but uh, infrastructure-wise, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and just one other thing. We, we saw this big announcement in recent days about the ambition to end domestic violence over the next decade. It's one of those things where immediately it comes to mind the, the Bob Hawke promise to end poverty. No Australian child should live in poverty by 1990. Everyone wants that to be true, of course, and they want the same thing to be true of domestic violence. Let's hope it is true. But there is some uh, budgetary cost that's built into that. But you know that is, I guess, part of what Labor would say it is there to do that signals it out, that marks it out as different as to where its priorities are. It's a kind of a keeping of the faith with women who voted for the Labor Party, but also particularly voted against, drifted, you know, ran away from Scott Morrison's offering on the other side. So this is delivering on the aspirations of everyone, but obviously particularly for women. As a policy document, what was your reaction when you saw that come down? I expected it, obviously, as you say, when, when, when you think back to the commitments made at the election and the, the way that the Labor government is calibrating itself and, and this is well within its agenda. I think it's a good thing that we're moving in the direction that we are on these policy fronts as a country. What I'm interested to see, and this is a longitudinal study, we're only going to know the answers to this in years to come, if not decades, but there has been a long-held view that whether it's dealing with domestic violence uh, more adequately through public policy measures or whether it's dealing with you know um, childcare or um, getting more women into the workforce through you know paid parental leave for example all of these policies that predominantly target women uh, rather than men not exclusively but predominantly they are all socially important for the sort of society that certainly the labor government wants and i would argue a lot of people want most people want 
But there's also supposed to be an economic dividend at the end of it, which improves productivity, you know, women's participation in the workforce and all the rest of it. When you deal with these problems, you know, some, some of which are, are, are of a very different ilk, like domestic violence to other problems, which are, and so forth. But if you deal with them collectively, the argument is that you massively boost female participation and therefore productivity. And I think that's right. But whether that dividend matches or exceeds the cost of the programs is something in an economic sense we don't yet know. It's not a reason not to do them, just to be very clear. You know, even if they come at a net cost, there's still good social reasons to do them, very good social reasons to do them. But what we're not going to know for a while is whether there is also that economic dividend that flows. We're assured that there is one, and economists are split on it, but I think they lean towards the argument that there is one. But that is something that, even if you think politically, Hugh, even if there is one, it's one that has no political dividend uh, on that side of it, does it? The political dividend comes from the social responsibility of taking action, not the economic long-term advantages of improved productivity and participation, because by the time that advantage comes around, the political class that have implemented the policy changes are long gone. Uh, and they've probably had to put up with the short-term costs, which are inevitable before the long-term benefits, if we're only talking about the economic side of it. Yeah, it's somewhere down the track. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe domestic violence can be ended, absolutely. No, I agree with that. Any more that, than war can be ended. You know, war has existed as long as there's recorded history. It is ultimately an absolutely futile, self-destructive action, yet we still keep doing it. Uh, you know, we've established all these international bodies to try to reduce the chances of conflict, and yet conflict goes on. This is not to make a case for how great war is any more than it is to make a case for how great domestic violence is. But at some stage down the track, after this policy has been in for a little while, and I'm just looking here at the politics of it, domestic violence will happen. It'll be headline events, again, dreadful stories that turn up. And then Labour will get slammed for saying, you made this big promise to fix domestic violence. You spent all this money. You know, you talked a good book, but look, you've done nothing. You've been hopeless at it. You know, so the things which look good in making the announcement at this stage can wind up in some ways down the track, building cynicism, if you like, against the Labour government. They were, they were more clever, though, weren't they, Hugh, about it? I mean, Bob Hawke, one of the problems that he had with his No Child Will Be Living in Poverty by 1990 pledge was that it was so profoundly definitive. The, the sort of end domestic violence pledge, I mean, t tell me, I'm, 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 this is more a question than a comment. Did it come with the level of sort of definitive timing and outcomes that Hawke had, or have they given themselves sort of a little bit of wiggle room? A generation, right. I think, is the word. A generation, which is a fairly vague time frame anyway. And, and look, it's, it's who's to argue with the aspiration, you know? And if Australia was to somehow do that, we would be uh, the envy of the world, and we would be an example and a laboratory for the world to, to use. And so let's wish it well. You're never going to, you're right though, you're never going to end it, are you? I mean, it's the same thing as saying that you're going to end murder. You, you, know, you say war, um, you know, end murder or end smoking or end gambling. I get gambling is potentially one that you could do if you're banned it, but even then, just like smoking, you know, it goes underground. So these sort of pledges, it's, it's about dramatically carving into its the, the amount that it occurs, right? And, and that's, I mean, surely that's reading between the lines, the goal of the domestic violence initiative. You're never going to end it but there's far, far too much of it relative in percentage terms than there should be. And, and it's about trying to, you know, within a generation, get it to the point where it very much is beyond exceptional uh, as opposed to something that we see and read about all the time.
yeah, remove a kind of a social license among mm. among some to, to, to behave in such ways. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a moment. Welcome back. This is uh, the professor and the hack. We're kind of a pre-budget chat, I suppose, with the PVO, uh, Peter Van Onsel. And look, one policy which came out, announced at the uh, New South Wales State Labor Conference by the Prime Minister, is this paid parental leave scheme mm. that he's cooked up. And this is for 26 weeks or six months of the year. Immediately again, is the problem. A bit of history triggers in your head when you when you see this. and You go, hang on a minute, I, I took 26 weeks, six months of the year now. Um, Ah, yes. Someone else is flogging off <laughs> six months paid parental leave schemes. At a higher rate, Hugh, at a higher rate. It was at a higher rate, but Tony <laughs> Abbott. And it's funny because I was looking for something else in our splendid archives at Channel 10 yesterday, and up popped a grab of Kevin Rudd campaigning back in 2013 to try to keep office. Of course, this is the very last gasp of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. And Rudd was having an absolute crack at Tony Abbott's six-month paid parental leave scheme with Anthony Albanese standing, nodding at his side. And the argument that uh, Rudd was making at the time was that the great dream of infrastructure nuts, which is the fast rail system between Brisbane to Melbourne, which is never going to happen because of the sheer staggering cost of it, Rudd's point was it would cost less, this fast train scheme, than Mr. Abbott's unaffordable, unfair paid parental scheme over the same time period as Albanese nodded furiously to decide. One of the things about this as a policy offering that's come up from Labour is the timeframe for it. So it is aspirational. It's not as expensive, plainly, as the one that was offered out by Abbott, partly because Abbott wanted to give wages up to $150,000. This one's capped off at $100,000, and there's obviously been an inflationary effect over the last decade since he announced, uh, Abbott announced his scheme. This one's at the minimum wage, isn't it? Or have I misread that? No, no. Well, well, my understanding of it is that it's at replacement wage up to $100,000, but starts with the Commonwealth. Ah, uh, okay. The Commonwealth will put up the scheme and then encourage other people to do it, that it becomes a kind of a, a workplace standard that private business will try to get up to, mm. but that it's not going to happen fast. So it, it becomes essentially something that, if you like the look of it, vote Labour back in again at the next election, because it's not going to happen before the next election. I wonder, after all of that, if it really amounts to much of a policy. Yeah, well, not really. I mean, it's it, it's a policy the same way that net zero emissions is a policy, I would argue. You know, it's a, it's a goal. It's worth having goals. It probably falls into a similar category uh, to what we were just talking about before around the domestic violence generational goal. You know, it's, there's nothing wrong with having these aspirational goals and you know it's a little bit better when there is a little bit more meat on the bones of of what it might look like down the track or how you might get there those two elements of it help i think but it's not a tangible policy that's just about that's on the cusp of becoming legislation and therefore law and therefore able to be implemented that would be the way that i would put it and you know what actually i think is interesting about it though i mean it's nice to see them doing it but Anthony Albanese is laying a lot of markers here in the hope of becoming a long-term government. And I think that's important. I actually interviewed him recently for a magazine article that's coming out about him later this year. And one of the things that he 
raised, which I thought was really interesting in that, which feeds into this, Hugh, is that he wants, he was quite explicit about this, he wants to be a long-term prime minister leading a long-term government because he is of the view that that is how you embed changes. And he reflected on what he thought were good government policies around Rudd and Gillard, but they weren't long-term government. They weren't a long-term government and therefore they weren't able to you know, lock in the changes. And so I guess his definition of them not being a long-term government is that they were only there for six years. He intends to be there for longer than that, clearly, by way of comparison, if he gets his way. And it's, it's quite a, I find it quite interesting because it's a very different style of government to somebody who would have been a bit of an idol for him back in the day, someone like Gough Whitlam, where it was sort of crash through or crash. He is an ideologue, but he has borrowed from the conservative side of politics, where he sees longevity and occupation of the treasury benches as a key ingredient to incrementally changing the nation and implementing your policies. He'll try to be you know, faster in that incremental change than a conservative prime minister might be. But he has borrowed strategically from their playbook. And I think that comes from 26 years in parliament, from watching the highs and the lows of Labor during that time. But it also butts up against the reality that he'll have to change, if he wants to do this, he'll have to also change what I think is overdue for change, which is this idea in this country that you're over the hill once you're into your 60s. He's a 59-year-old first-term prime minister, uh, Anthony Albanese. He looks younger than that, to give him a compliment. But, you know, on his playbook, he intends to be there well past his 65th birthday to do all the things he wants to do. Uh, And I think Australia probably needs to get used to the fact that there's nothing wrong with having older leaders in the way that other parts of the world do, maybe not, you know, sort of Joe Biden-esque age, but certainly punching well past their mid-60s because uh, he will only be entering, well, he will only be in the tail end of his second term by the time he hits that mid-60s age. Your point on age is, is a fair one that's kind of more or less like Howard. Remember, it's famous suggestion he might review his uh, his continuing in office at the age of 64, and he kept on going to uh, Peter Costello's dismay. Mm. But um, I think the insight that you've got there is a really profound one about his desire for longevity. And I think you see hints of it already in his behavior. He is methodical in his approaches to things. Mm. Where he's announced stuff, he's followed process. I've watched him with this business with New South Wales, where there's a a big stoush about the raising of the Warragamba Dam wall to try to ease the flooding that has totally devastated the far western suburbs of Sydney. And he has got on pretty well with Don Perito, the New South Wales Premier, but he's hung him out a bit to dry by not in by essentially saying that he, a, he hasn't had a phone call from Perrottet asking for money, although there have been lower-level ministerial letters going backwards and forwards, but also to just point out that there is a process and we'll get through the process. And he often talks about process. And that sort of, it, there's a danger in it because it can make you look just bureaucratic, but it also means that at least so far he hasn't looked hurried into anything. There's been no sign yet of anything remotely like panic. If there's been one, and it's not a, a mainstream issue, but but an issue where it seems as though they may have slightly stuffed the way in which it looks as this um, rec- well, is this reversal of the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, mm. uh, which has just happened in recent days. But I think, bearing in mind what you say, that he is seeing himself as someone who doesn't want to be seen as just a reactive, short-term, swinging politician. 
you know, it makes sense. Yeah, and and it's learning from political mistakes of of past leaders on on both sides, I suppose, both in government and opposition. I think it's I think it's the way that he he should govern. And there, yeah, the key to it obviously is that he has to achieve things in the process. And and the one big caveat I would have on the chances of him doing what he's seeking to do, which is to incrementally achieve changes over a long period of time as a long-term prime minister. The one hurdle he has to overcome, the big hurdle, apart from just continuing to win, obviously, is and staving off ambition within his own ranks and all the rest of that. One of the hurdles is that an old adage in this country is very much that you have to make moves quickly when you get into government because the opportunity to reform can fade because you get long in the tooth. And that's arguably the case even more now in the sort of social media age we're in than it was in the past. So he butts up against that. If he doesn't achieve changes of a significant enough order in the first term or two, is he really going to be able to keep incrementally changing things beyond the first term or two if he gets to a third or a fourth term? The answer is probably not, because usually what happens is governments end up just trying to hang on by the skin of their teeth after that, even if they don't achieve much. And if they do then go for it with something big, like Howard did, for example, with work choices, well, they're too long in the tooth by then, aren't they? And and the policy can arguably crash rather than succeed. So he's going to butt up against that, Hugh which will be interesting to watch. I think he's also, he's butting up against a new reality too, which wasn't there for Howard, except possibly arguably in the very last days. And that is the social media age. And Mm. if you look around the world, it has been destructive to incumbency. And uh, there is now this massive megaphones in everyone's hand to voice complaint and to, you know, things are not mediated. People can argue that it's a good or a bad thing, but it tends to increase instability. You know, the direct degree to which social media is responsible for that as as opposed to other factors that are playing. You know, social scientists can argue that as long as they go, but I think it's a significant factor. And when we've seen that around the world, it gives rise to instability. I think that's it. So I think that'll be a headwind against um, Albanese in his long-term plans. But I think many people probably wouldn't mind a bit of stability, a bit of stuff. And as long as he doesn't get arrogant and all that kind of stuff and you know, he's he's got better prospects than some. Yeah, look, important caveats there about not getting full of himself, no, no doubt. This feels a little bit like we're in a conundrum, though, because I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right that most people wouldn't mind a bit of stability and a bit of calm at the moment. And the tumult of the reformers of the 80s and early 90s, you know, one of the arguments was that Howard provided that calm, even though he actually had quite a few reforms of his own that followed. The, the risk, though, is that I, I think he's right. I think you're right that, that that sort of calm is what people want. Unfortunately, I actually think the tumult of major reform is what we need right now, going back to the first half of this podcast where we talked about tax reform, for example. So I just hope that if he is a little bit incremental and that if he is trying to settle the horses on calming people down and having more stability, that it doesn't end up being at the expense of bold reforms that are necessary, that are overdue in ensuring the prosperity of this country. It's a complex mix, Hugh. Who the hell would want to be a politician? Absolutely. Sometimes you wonder. Uh, Look, just quickly before we go, uh, Israel. This is an issue that I think the majority of Australians don't care anything about and a minority care enormously about. Mm. Penny Wong has been credited with not putting a foot wrong since she came into office very actively as, as our foreign minister, straight away off to the quad and then those trips around the Pacific helping to repair some damage down there. She has been faultless in the assessment of of many in this particular space. 
but uh, a complaint that this decision to essentially remove recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel to, to keep the embassy in Tel Aviv, which is where most nations have their embassies in Israel, the fact that it appeared on a DFAT website before it was apparently cleared by cabinet. Was it panicky? Was it badly handled? It was announced on a Jewish holiday, a holy day. You know, what on earth caused a break from the very steady hand that she's had up until now? Yeah, there's a few things to say about this. I mean, firstly, I think most people, to the extent, I think you're right, most people don't pay attention to this, but to the extent that those who do pay attention, uh, I think most would agree that it's a good policy reversal. I think most experts would agree that it's a good policy reversal, but that doesn't mean exactly your point, that it was well handled. It wasn't, it was botched, it was badly handled. And there's a lot of question marks over how it was handled too, by the way, not just announcing it on a holy day, a holiday for the Jewish community, which was bad. But, you know, the argument, if the argument is that she was sort of necessarily forced into announcing it on that holy day because of the DFAT leak, if you like, of it accidentally going up on a website the night before and she needed to clean that mess up, that's still of itself messy. Uh, I'm led to believe there was no communication or consultation with the Australian Jewish community, at least. Certainly, there's uproar in Israel. So the handling in that sense, in a consultative sense, if this is what good government is supposed to do, Anthony Albanese talked a lot about that. There wasn't much of that that happened. And on the same criteria, if cabinet government, Anthony Albanese talked a lot about wanting to lead good cabinet government, well, if Penny Wong, and you know, I'm speculating here, but if she has made this decision as a minister and assumed that it'll get ticked and flicked by cabinet the following day, informed her department, they've accidentally popped up the adjustment on the website before cabinet have ticked off on it. That is a case of putting the cart before the horse, and there is an arrogance in that. And she's one of Anthony Albanese's closest allies in parliament, if not the closest ally, as well as the leader in the Senate. So that raises question marks of its own, I think. Penny Wong, generally speaking, is a a solid performer, but this has been a badly handled situation about what should have been a win, I would argue, had it been handled properly for Labor because it seemed like a relatively obvious reversal that a Labor government would look to make, particularly given their soundings from opposition. Hmm. On that point, we'll have to leave it, PVO. Great to talk to you. We'll have another chat. Post-budget. Post-budget. What fun. (laughs) I look forward to that. All the best, mate. See you, mate. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.